So the story of Jewish cuisine is really the story of Jewish history. Jews have lived as a nation um, in the land of Israel only for the first 800 years or so of Judaism. Judaism, if we go back to the Exodus, if we mark the Exodus as the day of our birth, um, the Ezekiel calls it the, um, the day of the beginning of Israel at the moment of the Exodus, um, was about 3,300 years ago, according to our counting, our tradition. And so for the first 800 years or so of Judaism, we lived in the land of Israel as a um, single nation living um, in our land. But for the last 2,500 years or so, we have been scattered scattered around originally the Middle East and then later spread across the world. And so although we've been scattered, though, our communities have always been in close touch with each other. And this is throughout history. All Jewish communities around the world have always been in close touch with each other. We shared the same books. We shared the same language. We shared the same laws. We shared the same teachings. We shared the same traditions. All Jewish communities as a rule were always in, in touch and in constant communication with other Jewish communities. And as a result, although Jewish communities were created in different places, where Jews spoke different languages, and often adopted parts of the culture around them, depending on where they lived, there were strong similarities from community to community. We communicated with each other, we spoke to each other, we shared the same books, we shared the same scholarship, As books were published in one part, they very quickly reached other parts of the Jewish world, um, almost immediately. And so um, there was a very, very strong cross um, connection between Jewish communities consistently throughout our entire history. And because of that, although there were variations in Jewish culture, there were also very, very many similarities and things, what tended to happen is customs that began in one community um, that became popular very often spread very quickly to all Jewish communities. And what we'll see is this is true with Jewish foods as well, where most unique Jewish foods um, spread not only, were not only in one particular community, but tended to spread or variations of that food as well to other Jewish communities. Now, every Jewish, um, now Jewish foods, of course, had variations depending on the varying cultures where they lived. Um, also, depending on where we lived, we had different ingredients available to us, but there was also a lot in common from community to community. Um, of course, every Jewish culture in each re- uh, region ate local cuisine. We were really good at adopting local cuisine. Today, there are lots of kosher sushi places, lots of kosher pizza stores. Jews always loved eating other people's foods. So, and adding, of course, a Jewish spin. Our kosher sushi is only going to include kosher fish. Our kosher pizza will not have pa- will not have pepperoni on it, or will create fake pepperoni. So. We've always created a a Jewish style, but adopted local foods, and that's been true everywhere. And a lot of foods that today we associate with as Jewish foods 
are not really Jewish foods, but they're really foods from the places that we came from. So chicken soup is not really a Jewish food. It's, an, it's a European food. It didn't really come from... Yeah, it wasn't really a Jewish food. Um, hummus is not a Jewish food. It's a Middle Eastern food. Pita um, and the same falafel. And the same for many other foods that we associate as Jewish foods are not Jewish foods at all. They're foods of local cultures where Jews lived. Now, because Jews traveled a lot, we were very good at spreading food around. So we brought foods from one place to another, and we were often responsible for transporting foods. But they weren't real, they're not really Jewish foods. So my goal today is not to focus on foods that Jews happened to eat that were really part of the local cuisine wherever we ate, but to really cover foods that are unique to Jews. So, and we're not going to in any way cover Jewish foods comprehensively. What we will do is we will cover a selection of uniquely Jewish foods and try to explain why Jews eat them. And what we're going to see is, and my goal of what I want to show with, it, with this class on Jewish foods is not just to tell you about Jewish foods, many of which you're probably familiar with, but to show you how Jewish culture evolved, that how almost just about every single Jewish food that we have is, was created for one of two reasons. Either because of nuances in Jewish law that resulted in that food being developed, or because of specific Jewish holidays or specific Jewish celebrations. Um, in other words, Jewish foods were not just cultural, but were very much religious. They're very much part of Torah, Torah teachings, halacha, Jewish law, um, holidays, Jewish celebrations. Uh, so Jewish foods are not just a cultural thing as foods of other cultures that they just happen to develop that food in that culture, but Jewish foods are very things that, especially things that are spread across the entire Jewish community, given that Jews have many different palates coming from many different places. What made Jewish foods uniquely Jewish was actually Jewish rules and Jewish laws. So one very important factor that came to when that was uh, that caused uh, Jewish foods to evolve is our laws of kosher. We are very limited in what we can eat. We cannot eat many animals. We don't eat pig. We don't eat horse. We don't eat many other meats that our non-Jewish neighbors may eat. We don't eat most water creatures outside of fish um, and the like. We're also limited not mixing milk and meat together. So this creates a lot of limits on our palate, a lot of limits on our diet. Now, even when eating meat, we are limited from eating certain parts of the animal. So we're not allowed, we don't eat well, we're, we can eat hind parts of the animal, but we must cut out the sciatic nerve. Um, and as a result, Jews generally avoided eating the hind parts of the animal. We're forbidden from eating certain membranes on um, the membranes and certain organs. And so we had limits on what we could eat. One particular concern for Jews who ate kosher, which generally throughout history most Jews did, was on travel. Jews traveled an awful lot. We were always travelers. That's how communities stayed in touch with each other. Jews always traveled from... We have many, many 
diaries of Jewish travelers throughout history. Uh, we have lots of Marco Polos, and um, there were many, many Jewish travelers. We were, when we traveled, we spoke Hebrew so we could communicate with Jewish communities around the world. Um, wherever they were, they all spoke Hebrew, and so we were able to communicate. And we traveled. We did travel a lot for merchandise. We, um, we developed the Silk Route going to China. We developed the Spice Route, um, which was a sea route going to India. Um, those routes were generally dominated by Jews throughout much of history. So we traveled extensively. Problem is, although Jews live in many places, Jews did not live in all places. So if you come to a nice Jewish town, you get kosher food. What happens when you come to a town that is not Jewish, or there's no Jews living in town? What do you eat? So you could eat vegetables. Of course, we know that in much of the world, um, till modern times, vegetables were only available in certain seasons, right? Vegetables were not widely available. And so potatoes is a, was only around the last 500 years since we discovered the New World. So what Jews have always done, what travelers in general have done, but Jews in particular because of their kosher diet have always done, is Jews needed to find ways to preserve kosher food. And so although preservatives have been common in all cultures, all cultures have preserved food, Jews have been especially known for preserving food. And that's why a lot of pickled foods are not necessarily originally Jewish or unique to Jews, but often are associated with Jewish cuisine, foods such as pastrami, corned beef, lox, pickled herring, sardines, they were very cheap, pickles, which are pickled cucumbers, were all common foods that Jews used um, in order to travel. Jews here in the United States, pastrami was brought over from Europe, it was originally a German food, brought over by Jews here to the United States. Deli, um, the delicatessen, was a Jewish thing. Many Jews, in that, many of our grandparents that came to this country in the late 19th, early 20th century were peddlers. That's what we did well. We were good salesmen. And so they were peddlers. These peddlers would travel across the country, across the south, across the Midwest, to many places where no Jews lived. And as they traveled with their cart, they would... Take deli with them. What else? You needed something that would last for weeks. Um, or they would take, if they were not, did not have the, mo the money to buy meats, they would take sardines and herring um, because they were pickled fish because that was fairly cheap and much easier, to, uh, much easier to get. So pickled foods, though not unique to Jews, um, are often associated with the Jewish palate because as travelers we needed... Um, as travelers that and limited to kosher food, we often took pickled foods wherever we went. Did those foods need to be refrigerated, and yeah. how did they do that? Yeah. That's a very good question. Um, today we're a little spoiled with refrigeration. Um, pickled foods survive, depending on how they're pickled, survive without refrigeration. That's what pickled foods, that's why you pickle foods. In order, it kills the, the brine, in, um, it's, you soak it in brine or in vinegar, and that um, kills the bacteria, and the bacteria cannot live in, vine and, uh, uh, in brine or vinegar, and so therefore it's, it can last for a long time. Um, they would have to pickle it to a much 
greater extent than we do today in order for it to live outside the refrigerator for a long time. Um, what they used to do because it was so salty, their pickled foods, they would have to rinse it off or soak it in water before they actually ate it. Uh, we don't do that to our pastrami today. But um, they would do that if they really, they would have to really, really soak it in brine, in much, much heavier brine. Maybe their pickled food is more, was more like jerky is today. Jerky's more dry, dried, dry. But they would dry, I don't know why they pickled more than they dried. But um, yeah, dry is another way of getting it to preserve, preserving it. So, so that, those are not unique Jewish foods, but definitely foods that tend to be associated with Jews, um, and definitely very um, and definitely were associated with Jews. Jews ate them a lot because of our needs for our kosher needs. Yes. No. Yeah, but so rabbinic. And at the beginning, there were there was. For another time. Another time. <laughs> so a more what we could call a more unique Jewish food that came from our kosher needs, um, something that's not really very popular today with our modern palate, but it was once a very unique Jewish food is chopped liver. Chopped liver. Yeah. So now liver from animals and birds. Um, in general, was eaten by all people. As a rule, people ate every part of the animal. You didn't want anything to go to waste. It was, if it could be eaten, you ate it. So we ate every part of the animal. However, Jews had a problem with liver. We are forbidden from eating blood. So in order to avoid eating blood, we salt all our meat. We salt it. It must sit in salt for an hour. It must first be soaked for a half hour to um, soften the meat. Then it's salted for an hour, and then um, we rinse it three times to get the salt off. And when done, there is the salt draws out the um, the blood from the meat. So, um, so but liver is a problem. Liver is full of blood. The um, Jewish law tells us that salting liver doesn't do doesn't get rid of the blood. How then do we get the blood out of riv- uh, out of liver? We need to roast it on a low flame. So we roast the liver on a, low, on a grate over a low flame. And the blood, as it's being roasted, the blood drips out. And so a little bit, you add a little bit of salt and the blood drips out of the liver. Problem is, when you're done, the liver is singed, shrunken, because it's been sitting over an open flame for a long time. So it's not really a presentable dish anymore. So we Jews came up with a different solution, which was chop chop it. Of course, chop it, turn it into a paste. And now it could be used as a dip and um, or it could be eaten as as is. And so we created the spread. And so we created the chopped liver. Another kosher food. That was common only in Ashkenazic communities, I'll soon tell you why, that was unique to Jews, um, that also is no longer popular with the modern palate. Um, this might be because of our health concerns, was schmaltz. How do you know where I was going? The schmaltz. So Jews used, schmaltz is fat from chicken. Jews used chicken schmaltz, um, the fat from chicken, 
in order to fry. We fried with chicken fat. And we actually had another food called gribbets, which was after the fat, the leftover pieces, um, they would eat that. Um, and uh, they would eat that as well. Now, why, why did Jews fry with chicken fat? Fat is not the most convenient thing or even the most tasteful thing to fry with. What did our non-Jewish neighbors use to fry? Lard. They used lard or they used butter, right? We can't use butter because we can't fry meat things with dairy. We can't use lard. And so therefore we were stuck with using chicken fat. Sephardic Jews didn't have this problem because where Sephardic Jews lived, there was an abundance of, they lived among the, along, around the Mediterranean, there was plenty of olive oil and other oils, and so therefore they didn't need to use chicken fat. They used oil, which was 100% kosher, and um, they fried a lot. They did fry a lot, and they fried with oil. Now, another food that is not unique to Jews, but Jews have always had a prominent role, and therefore I think should be mentioned, is the wine business. A very large part of, a very large amount of wine on the market today and throughout much of history has been produced by Jews. And the reason for this is because <laughs> Jews were always great, um, made the best wines. The reason for this is because Jews are forbidden from, Jews drink a lot of wine. We must drink wine. We drink wine every week for Kiddush and for Havdalah. Um, for every Jewish ceremony, we have wine. So Jews drank an extensive amount of wine, while our non-Jewish neighbors did not have to drink wine. They had only a little bit of wine for the entire, their entire service. We Jews, every single house, had to have a bottle of wine every Friday night. So we, and every Saturday night. So we, had, so we drank a lot of wine, um, but Jewish law forbids Jews from drinking wine produced by non-Jews. And by non-Jews. And so, therefore, Jews would only buy wine that was produced exclusively by fellow Jews. As a result, Jews had to produce wine for fellow Jews, and because non-Jews would buy our wine, um, we would then sell it to non-Jews as well, making Jews very prominent in the wine business. Um, this is mostly Jews in Italy. Um, Jews weren't living in France for until the last couple hundred years. But Jews um, in France originally, um, later Jews in Italy, in Greece, um, and around the Mediterranean, um, in places in wine-producing, in grape-producing countries. Yes? So if you have a Jew that produces wine, does that have to be kosher? We're going to do a class on kosher wine. Sorry? She said with samples. With samples. Ida? No, just wine. No, just wine. wine. Just wine. Yeah. Jews have been prominent in the alcohol business in general, but we did buy non-Jewish alcohol, not non-Jewish wine. So, uh, so Jews in Southern Europe always produced quality wine. Now, Jews did not always drink sweet wine. That's a myth. The sweet Jewish wine developed, was developed by Jews in New York over 100 years ago in the 1890s, in the late 19th century, um, because Jews needed wine. And um, we needed kosher wine. 
And Jews, most Jews at the time lived in New York. Most Jews in the U.S. lived in the Northeast. Um, and there aren't too many grapes that grow in the cold climates in the Northeast. The only grape, the only grape that grows in it is easy to grow there is the Concord grape, which is a very, very sweet grape. And as a result, Jews making wine in the Northeast were using Concord grapes, which created very, very sweet wines. And that's where the sweet wines was an American wine. Jews in Europe didn't have these kind of sweet wines. Um, but that's where the Jewish sweet wines came from. Today, there are many quality Jewish wines available. Um, wine is produced in California. Kosher wine is produced in California, in Israel, in Europe, and, and really around the world today. Uh, but for some reason, Jews still um, have that connection to our early 20th century sweet New York wines. Can we presume that if it is labeled a kosher wine, it means that it has been prepared and created by a Jew. It needs to be certified kosher. But we'll do a class on kosher wine. No, but the, the point is that you said that we can only drink wine that is made by Jews. I've never seen a symbol that says made by Jews. No, we'll say kosher. Yeah, if it's kosher, then it's made by Jews. Yes. Okay. So now many, Jew, many, kosher, many Jewish foods are unique to special Jewish occasions particularly Shabbat and holidays. Um, we Jews have two fancy meals, big meals, every single week, one Friday night and one Shabbat morning or a Shabbat brunch that we did every week. So we had two meals, big meals, every single week. Um, plus, we have many special meals for different special holidays and different special occasions. And this gave rise to many unique Jewish foods. Perhaps the most notice, notable is matzah. Matzah, as we said, is instructed. Moses instructs the people in this week's parsha 3,300 years ago to eat matzah together with their Passover sacrifice. Um, matzah goes back even further. The Torah told, mentions Abraham um, or his nephew Lot making matzah. Matzah is the unleavened bread that we all know so well. Um, we Jews have been eating it practically forever. We've been eating it since the Exodus for sure for over 3,000 years. We also have many foods that have come from matzah. We had um, matzah flour, known in Yiddish as matzah mel, that you can make things out of. Um, people made matzah balls from that. Um, there's an um, Eastern European food called matzah brai, which is soaked matzah with eggs um, and fried that they would make. Uh, what many don't know is that Jews, until about 400 years ago, did not eat matzah the way our matzah looks today. Rather, their matzah was a soft matzah that looked more like pita or laffa bread. Laffa bread is like a large, hard pita bread that they eat in Israel and in the Middle East. So um, Jews, the laffa was very much, look, that's what the original matzah looked like. It's only in the last 400 years or so that our matzah turned into a cracker. Um, as I mentioned... Now, the history of why that happened is a class we did some time ago and um, definitely a subject for another class, how that happened. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, what tended to happen is when something changed in one community, it very quickly spread throughout the world. The matzah changed about 400 years ago. Um, 
it started it appears in um, Eastern Europe or, um, or Central Europe. They changed, started making the flat cracker, and from there it quickly spread across the entire Jewish world, with only one exception. The only Jewish community that through the 20th century was still making the old matzah and still does today are Yemenite Jews. They still make the old soft matzah um, that doesn't hurt your teeth to chew. Uh, but otherwise, every Jewish community across the world, Ashkenazic, Sephardic, um, all adopted around the same time the hard cracker matzah. Yes, Don? Now, you've said to me, though not in this class this morning, that you're not supposed to get matzah wet. And yet you have just acknowledged matzah brai, where it is so... That is a very good question. Um, Jews used matzah year-round, not only on Passover. There were varying customs as to whether to get matzah wet. Many communities did cook with matzah. Many communities did not. So there were variations in that. I don't know. I don't know if there's anywhere that sells lafa either. If you go to Israel, they sell lafa in any of the any of the any of the falafel towns sell lafa. But are we bound by our custom? We couldn't use it on Pesach. Sorry. Mediterranean stores. We'll have to have it today. Come Yes. You know, Trader Joe's on Manhattan Beach Boulevard, probably the other one too, but the one up the street from us, Manhattan Beach Boulevard. We try to figure out which wines were, were kosher, and there's a lot of wine there. They'll and, tell you, Asta. And, and they, have it, they have it marked. Because I mm-hmm. asked them, but they, it's easy to find out. Yes. Not just many shepherds, but lots of different wines. So let's, let's move on. So another important sta- staple that is unique to Jews, and nobody else has it, but we all have it, all Jewish communities around the world, is challah. Challah. Challah means loaf in Hebrew. Um, that's, it just means a loaf in biblical Hebrew. Um, but Jews had a tradition to make a puffy braided loaf called challah for Shabbat and holidays. Ashkenazic Jews would make the challah with flour, water, eggs. And while Sephardic Jews would make what's called water challah, not adding any eggs. And the reason for that is, again, because of Jewish law, when we make Bread, we have a mitzvah of separating challah. The mitzvah of challah is to separate a piece of a loaf. And in, Bibli- in temple times, we would give it to the Kohen. Today, we burn that, we make a blessing and we burn that piece. There are halachic opinions that if the liquid used is not all water, but you use eggs or other liquids as well, you are not obligated to separate challah. So because of that, Sephardic Jews would make their challah with just flour and water, um, even though, I guess it's a matter of opinion, may not be as tasty as adding egg to it. What they did add were things like sesame seeds, uh, which were more plentiful down in um, the Middle East, sesame seeds and poppy seeds, they would add to the challah as well. Ashkenazic Jews, to flavor their challah, tended to add raisins, although it doesn't seem to be so popular anymore. Um, It's unclear when the challah first began to be braided and why it became braided. All Jews around the world all make braided challah. Um, It's unclear why or um, when it started. One uh, 17th century Jewish scholar, the Chavot Yair, Yair Bachrach, suggests that the way the braiding started was there is a Jewish law that when making bread, you're not allowed to make your bread 
meat or dairy. Why? Because bread is eaten at all meals, at meat and dairy meals. If your bread is meat, you may end up eating it with dairy. If your bread is dairy, you may end up eating it with meat. So the, the Jewish law is that you're not allowed to make bread, meat, or dairy. Bread must always be parava, uh, must be neither. And so unless if you do want to make meat bread or dairy bread, you must make it different, shape it different. So Rabbi Arbachrach suggested that the way the braided challah began was Jews originally would make bread with a, uh, for Shabbat with a meat stuffing inside. They would put meat in honor of Shabbat inside their bread. Mm-hmm. But because they put in a stuffing, they wanted, they had to do something, make it different than their regular bread. And therefore they began to braid it. Over time we stopped putting in the meat stuffing but we retained the braided, um, the braided shape. Today, braided challah is generally not meat or dairy. It would no longer be a unique sign. So if you did want to put a meat stuffing, you would, braiding it would not be good enough. You'd have to make it a totally different shape than any other bread that you eat in order to follow that Jewish law of not making regular bread, meat, or dairy. On... Um, uh, there are different customs on different holidays and varies from community to community to make different shaped challah for different holidays. Perhaps the most commonly known one <coughs> that most communities did was to make round challah on Rosh Hashanah for in honor of the new year. Now, our Shabbat meals and holiday meals generally consist of two courses. One course would be fish, and one would be meat or fowl. And the reason for that is, um, we are told um, in that one should eat fish in honor of Shabbat. It is a delicacy that one was an expensive delicacy to eat in honor of Shabbat. We are also told that a real dinner should always have meat or fowl in it. So because of that, we would eat both fish. Most communities would eat both fish and meat or fowl at their dinners. However... We, Jewish law forbids us from eating fish together with meat or fowl. While fish is not dairy, and we're allowed to eat fish on the same plates as the fish that, the, and cook it in the same um, in the same utensils and um, in the same utensils and ovens that we cook um, meat or dairy. However, the Talmud tells us we should not eat fish together on the same plate with meat. And so because of that, we had two different courses. One course would be fish with appetizers, and the second course would be meat or, um, or poultry. And so, um, and, and so um, we always had those two courses on all festive Jewish meals, all important meals. We always had those two courses. So... <coughs> Now, when we ate fish, Ashkenazic communities had a very unique custom <laughs> that they would grind up the fish, mix it with flour and eggs, and make what become, became known as gefilte fish. Gefilte is Yiddish for stuffed fish. Stuffed because there's flour in it. Why did we do that? Why did we grind the fish? What was the reason for it? So, we would so there is one of the 39 prohibitions. There are 39 forms of creative work that are forbidden on Shabbat. One of those 39 
forms of creative work forbidden is called borer. Borer means to um, pull out the bad things from the good food. So if it is forbidden, for example, to fillet a fish, to pull the bones out of the fish. Because of that problem, so you cannot serve fish with bones on Shabbat because you can't take the bones out. So therefore they would grind the bones before Shabbat. They would grind sorry, the fish before Shabbat so there's no bones in it. So therefore you're able to eat it. Sephardic Jews did not do that. They would have, the, um, North African Jews um, would have a um, dish called chrem, which would, they would just fillet the fish before Shabbat. Um, so it had no bones in it, and then cook it with tomatoes and spices, um, and that was, that would, that's their Shabbat fish dish. Um, one community that had an exception to this rule uh, was, were Jews in Hungary. Hungary is a landlocked country. So fish in Hungary is very, very expensive. So only the wealthiest Jews were able to afford to buy fish for Shabbat. So therefore, because most Jews didn't have um, fish, they didn't dispense with the fish course entirely, but they rather had a different food um, that they would serve instead, eggs, um, eggs mixed with onions, and it was known as Eertzvibble. Anyone who has Hungarian grandparents would be familiar with the Hungarian food um, of the egg and onions that would be the first course for Shabbat. The schmaltz is for the frying. (laughs) (laughs) Now, perhaps the most notable Jewish food is the hot food that we eat on Shabbat. Because we Jews are forbidden to cook on Shabbat, we need to cook all our food before Shabbat. We're not allowed to cook, so everything must be fully cooked before Shabbat. However, we are allowed to leave it on a flame over Shabbat. We do have a unique rule over here. We are not allowed to cover the pot. We're not allowed to put the pot inside the coals. That's forbidden. We're, not, we're also not allowed to cover the pot while it sits on the flame. We also have to cover the flame. Um, we're not allowed to have an open, we're not allowed to have it cooking on an open flame. So there are rules as to how we leave this hot food. But we would leave a hot food on a, over a fire, covered fire. And that way, the next day, when we have our Shabbat brunch, the next morning, we are able to eat hot food. In um, Ashkenazic communities, they called it chalant or chulant. In Sephardic communities, they called it dafina or chamin. And, um, so, but they were hot foods that we would eat on Shabbat. Why did we always want... Well, firstly... It's always pleasant to have hot food at a meal. Um, Nobody wants to have a meal of just cold food. But also, this custom began during the Second Temple period. During the Second Temple, there was a sect called Sadducees, or Tzidukim. And the Sadducees, the Tzidukim, um, had some variations of Jewish law from our traditions. Um, they had their own versions of different Jewish laws. They changed a number of things. And among them was they believed you were not allowed to have anything, leave anything cooking on Shabbat. So you're not allowed to have any hot foods on Shabbat. So in order to distinguish ourselves from them, Jews would, be, would make sure to have hot foods on Shabbat. Now because this food is cooking on a fire from 
the afternoon before, so sometimes for 15, 16 hours. Um, so it therefore would be very, it's a very well, very well cooked, and it is a very heavy food because it's been cooking for so long. Ashkenazic Jews would put, um, for their chalant, would put in meat, barley, beans, potatoes, after potatoes came to, the, um, to Europe. Sephardic Jews would create chamin or dafina. They would have meat with different vegetables, depending on where they were. Different communities had different vegetables. Some put in zucchini, some eggplant, some um, peppers, and many would also add eggs to their um, chamin. So now that we have um, slow cookers and hot plates that aren't an open fire, does that change the requirement about something being covered? Very good question. So Irving Naxon, or his original name was Irving Nachumson, was a Jew in New York who in 1940 was trying to figure out a better way to make chalant. And... Um, he was an Ashkenazi Jew. Um, and he was an inventor. He invented many things. And so he invented this thing called a slow cooker. A slow cooker. Uh, who knew? Um, he, uh, a slow cooker, which later after he sold his patent, became, uh, was marketed as a crock pot. And um, in order for to be able to create chalant, and to make chalan, and that has become a staple of the American home today, as long as there is nothing covering the top of the pot other than the cover itself. There's no second layer on top. And as long as the fire itself is covered, which the crockpot has both, the crockpot can be used on Shabbat. Don't you, have, don't you have to plug it in? Before Shabbat, you plug it in, and you leave it in. Yeah. Before Shabbat, it's plugged in. Just like you're allowed to leave the fire on, you're allowed to leave the electric fire on of the slow cooker. And um, apparently the slow cooker, thanks to the working woman um, in, the, in America, became very popular. And um, today there's whole industries that are running around of recipes and um, running around slow cookers. Yes? Um, are there special ones for Shabbat? Special ones for Shabbat that cook at a lower temperature than a regular crock pot? Yeah, just turn because a crock pot. Most of them have dials, so you could adjust the temperature. Sometimes it's too hot to cook something for I don't know. 15 hours or 20 I don't hours. Know. I don't know. I'm just confused about not covering food. If you don't cover it, it's going to dry out. No, you can have a cover on it. Oh. You cannot cover the pot. Cover the pot? Double cover. You cannot put another cover. So if you want to, your pot to stay extra warm um, and the air the hot air not to the hot heat not to go out people would maybe put a towel over it or put something else over it that's forbidden Jewish law okay, so Jews also had let me finish up because we're running late Jews also had traditional food for Hanukkah for Purim for other holidays as well on Hanukkah we ate dried food in honor of the miracle of oil um, Ashkenazi communities once potatoes came to the new world um, made their fried foods out of Potatoes, they call them latkes. Sephardim made it out of um, out of flour and uh, flour and oil, and they would mix it. They would stick in um, they would stick in jelly, um, and they created sufganiyot. Um, we also had special foods for Purim. 
um, representing the destruction of Haman, Ashkenazim a Haman Tashin, which are these um, triangular little cookies. Sephardic Jews, um, at least in southern Europe, ate fazulot, with fazulot, which were fried pastries um, made from flour and egg, these um, thin pastries that were rolled up. They had this thing called los dientes de Haman. No, okay, Haman. same idea. So just to finish up, you left out corrosive. I left out a lot of fruits. <laughs> just to conclude, I cannot finish this class without talking about the bagel. The bagel is a uniquely Jewish Ashkenazic food that came from Eastern Europe. Now, unlike all the other Jewish foods that we've been talking about, the bagel did not come from any Jewish rules or any Jewish holidays. Rather, it's thought that the bagel began in, 15th, in 14th or 15th century in Poland when Jews were forbidden from selling bread. Jews had historically in different, different countries been kept out of different professions. Um, there were often um, guilds that didn't allow Jews to join. Jews were not allowed to be bakers in Poland. And so Jews are always creative in getting around every rule. And so sure enough, we were as well. And we decided that if we boil the bread first, the dough first, it does not count as baked bread. And so therefore, we started making bagels. Um, and we've been eating bagels ever since. The hole in the bagel um, was created simply practical once boiled, um, the, when you boil the bagel, it um, hardens the ex outside of the dough, making it very hard to bake the center when you put it in the oven, because first you boil it and then you put it in the oven. Um, so it makes it very hard to, um, to bake the inside. So by cutting out the hole, you don't have to worry about the inside being baked. So Jewish foods, as we've seen, and we have not, this has not been a comprehensive discussion of all Jewish foods by any means, but what we have seen is it really tells the story of the history of our people. But more importantly, I think it shows us how central Torah Jewish law has always been to Jewish culture. 1,100 years ago, one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of all time was Rav Sadia Gaon. And he made a very profound statement. He said, Our nation is not a nation without Torah. What creates Jews as a people, what holds Jews together as a people, what created almost every part of Jewish culture is our Torah, is our laws, our halacha, our laws, our holidays, our rules, everything Jewish centered around Torah. Even the most mundane parts of Judaism, Jewish culture, Jewish life, centered around Torah life. And so therefore, we cannot be a people without study and practice of our Torah. And what's happened historically, although Jews have always been able to survive through thousands of years in diaspora, spread out all across the world, any Jewish community that failed to study and failed to keep the rules, uh, the laws of the Torah, with time assimilated. And unfortunately, we have had Jewish communities over history that we know existed at one point and are now entirely gone. 
There is no remnant left of them. And what they all had in common is they failed to study and to keep the Torah. Without the Torah, there is no Judaism, there is no Jewish culture. It lasts a generation, two generations, maybe three generations, and then it dies out. And the only way we can preserve Judaism, Jewish culture, keep culture alive, is only through Torah. And so therefore I'm going to conclude, I've made this appeal many times in the past, but I'm going to conclude by asking you all, since you all enjoy this class so much, you're here, evidenced by the fact that you're all here, um, please reach out to friends, to acquaintances, invite them to come. The more we spread it, the more we encourage others to come study and enjoy the good breakfast, but come study with us. Let's invite more people so that we can grow this class and spread the words of Torah.